Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike Perry, along with my good friend, Brett Jones. And today's topic is, is going to be an interesting one. Um, it's going to be informational, it's going to be personal, and we're going to share our stories. And it's all about cancer. And um, both of us have, have been diagnosed and with the different cancers, of course, but we've, we've unfortunately um, have have a very personal story uh, about our cancer journey. And we wanted to share that with you because, you know, we felt that it was important to, to share our personal stories, what we went through mindset, the whole thing. So we're going to start off with, uh, with Brett's journey, and then we're going to move on to mine. And we're just going to, uh, just have a conversation about our experiences, et cetera. So, uh, why don't you go ahead, Brett? Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Um, First off, great to be back uh, on the podcast with you, and uh, definitely we're diving into the deep end of the pool here and talking about, uh, you know, our our journeys, uh, our diagnosis, treatment, uh, what what does it mean to have that experience? And, you know, for me, um, February 20 of 2020, so 2-20-2020, I... Uh, underwent a biopsy for what had been uh, initially in like October of 2019, I had had um, ear pain. So it really felt like eustachian tube slash ear uh, went to my doc. Um, and uh, he looked in my ear, saw some fluid. So we treated it like it was a minor kind of ear infection. And uh, that didn't help. And so we did another round of treatment. And at that time he made a referral to an ENT and, um, you know, I followed up with the ENT, uh, the first gentleman that I saw, um, and it's interesting. I mean, you, you just doctors like anybody else, you're going to, you're going to click and connect with some of them and you're, and you're not with others. And, you know, just really didn't click with this guy, um, right off the bat. And so, uh, but he, you know, he did his thing and, and looked and he said, ah, you know, we should probably, you know, get a CT scan and blah, 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 blah. So we do that. And uh, he made a referral to somebody else within the practice that was more of like a, uh, um, a tonsillar and throat specialist. And um, around this time, my part of my tongue went numb. Um, so I had this pain and I had this numbness on my tongue. And so, you know, I went to the first visit and, um, he kind of, he looked at the CT scan and, and, uh, looked at things and like, ah, you know, you know, you can get the swelling in the tonsils and, you know, usually it's no big deal and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, all right, whatever. So I went to France to teach, uh, at an SFG and I came back and I had an appointment with him that Tuesday, uh, would have been the 18th. So I, 
go to the appointment. And I, he's like, well, how are you? And I said, well, ear still hurts, tongue still numb. Um, not much, not much different. And he says, well, I have an opening on Thursday for a surgical, for a biopsy. So why don't we just go ahead and do that? And I'm like, oh, okay. So that accelerated quickly. And so I go in, you know, get, um, get prepped. Um, I go to sleep <laughs> and they, uh, they do the surgery, uh, do the biopsy. And uh, I woke up and my wife was there and uh, my doctor was there. And I, you know, he told me, you know, you know, we got some, got some bad news and, and it is cancer. And he was able to uh, do uh, some slices and, and look at it under the microscope. And, you know, he had about a 95% diagnosis, you know, right away. Um, and as you know, because you had a very similar experience, um, that is a gut punch that unless you've taken it, uh, it's hard to describe uh, what, what a gut punch that is and, and just how impactful. I mean, not only are you waking up from surgery, <laughs> you're kind of, kind of groggy and, and, and out of it and, uh, and, and whatever, but, uh, you know, to hear those words, to, to have my wife there with me and to, uh, have that as the start of, of that, uh, the cancer journey. And, um, obviously there was more testing to be done and there was more, we had pathology reports to wait on and, and all this stuff. And I just needed to go home and recover from the, uh, from the biopsy surgery. And, uh, the staff was great. I remember in particular, there was a male nurse, uh, helping us out who just, uh, you know, like I said, you take that gut punch and you just kind of don't know what the next step is. And he was just fantastic at, at helping us and, you know, realizing the situation we were in and, and, and helping us out. So, um, that started the process, which ended up being, um, uh, my, my cancer ended up being <clears throat> stage three primary tonsillar squamous cell carcinoma with, uh, no lymph node involvement, uh, and a T4 tumor, which is the size tumor. It's the, the largest, uh, tumor. And my cancer was unique in that from a diagnostic standpoint, in that typically with this kind of cancer, you have some sort of external, lump, bump, palpable, nodule thing. Um, and that's usually what people go in for. They got the, they got, I got a thing growing out of my neck, doc. Um, and I didn't have any of that. And I had been palpated uh, and people had looked and couldn't find anything. And yet I had this really very large uh, tumor and it had infiltrated some of the deep ton musculature. And, um, you know, that... Um, and it turns out, and I think we mentioned this in the first podcast, um, turns out it was HPV based cancer, uh, P16 positive for anybody <laughs> keeping, keeping score at home and <clears throat> which most everybody on the planet has been exposed to HPV. Some people clear it. Some people don't, uh, I did not, it became a cancer and, um, that also meant the treatment outcomes are better. It's a, it's a quote, easier cancer to treat or has better treatment outcomes. And, you know, prior to the rise in HPV based cancers and things like that, um, or the diagnosis, um, most of your throat cancers would have been smoking related and, or due to other things. And they were much harder to treat. 
And, you know, I learned, as you did, I learned a ton as I went through this and, and talked to different, my speech pathologist, because when you're getting radiation on the throat, in, in the past, when they would treat this, and the primary treatment for my cancer was radiation, primary treatment for your cancer was chemo. Um, I had two chemo infusions, but the primary treatment was radiation. Uh, people who got this in the past would get what they call a wooden neck, where literally the scar tissue and the, the uh, impact of the radiation would create really like literally like wooden neck, like you no 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 mobility, trouble swallowing, trouble speaking, um, and it literally like a neck that you could knock on. And, um, you know, um, and they would immediately start you on a pick line, um, a feeding tube that goes directly into the stomach, through the abdomen to the stomach, uh, not the feeding tube that goes down the nose because they're getting ready to irradiate that area and they don't want to melt the tube <laughs> that's snaked down to your stomach. Uh, and those are associated with a ton of problems, infection, and, and they're just, if you can avoid them, you avoid them. So if I had had this cancer seven years ago, 10, seven to 10 years ago, immediate feeding tube um, probably would have ended up with a wooden neck and, uh, and had some really you know, trouble swallowing speaking you know, after the fact. And they've just progressed so much uh, in the treatment. So, and being that it was radiation, um, one of the things that I had to do was uh, get a radiation mask made. And that is different than what you're picturing. So when you get radiation, you, for this particular uh, area, you lay down on the table, they, you know, you've got the little thing dosing you with the radiation. But in order to lock you in to the table in the same place every time for the treatment, because the precision here, where they've come in dosing the radiation and, and uh, targeting the radiation is amazing. The physics that's involved in um, the, the CT scan and the work that they do to precisely target where they're going to be putting that radiation and, and the physics is why I was almost a little over a month from diagnosis to the beginning of treatment. Uh, it took that long to get all of these things in place to, uh, to start. And so what you do when they make a radiation mask is you go in and um, they heat up a plastic webbing uh, that they're going to stretch over you and uh, make this mask that locks you into the table every time. And I mean, this thing came down to xiphoid. Um, I, I have what I call my prison tats now uh, where they, uh, you, you can laugh, uh, where they, uh, uh, they make these little uh, tattoo marks on you so that they know the mask is in the same place every time they put it on you. And so I've, and they do it with just a needle and some ink and it's, it's not, uh, it's not fancy and you, they just kick, 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 and they tag you a few times and you get little uh, tattoos. And um, so you go in, they lay you down, they heat up this plastic, they stretch it over you. And initially what they want to do, they want to keep your tongue in the same place as well, especially for my cancer, because uh, it was tonsillar and it had infiltrated deep tongue musculature. So they, um, they want to make sure your tongue is in the same place as well. So initially they give you a mouthpiece 
that they heat up and, and they try to get it back there. And um, keep in mind, I have this really large tumor in my throat at this point. And so swallowing was, I, I hadn't been good at swallowing pills for a, a few years, which is probably the growth of the tumor and you know things of that nature. And so uh, they start stretching this plastic over you and you've got this mouthpiece in and this mouthpiece shoves your uh, jaw back, shoves your neck back and kind of closes your airway. And so, and I, <clears throat> I managed, uh, you are in the mask and you are getting the CT scan for over half an hour. Uh, that's how many scans they're doing and how precise they're trying to be. Well, about 25 minutes into the scan, I can't swallow and I lose my airway and I freak out. And it's honestly one of the first times, if not the only time in my life, I'd ever really experienced anxiety. Um, and I, I freaked. Um, I, you know, I'm flailing on the table. They're running in and hitting the button and getting me out of the machine and taking this thing off of me. And so um, we had to start over. Oh, <laughs> perfect. So perfect. And, but this time we went with a, uh, a ton depressor so that it's this, um, has this little foam pad on it and you put it in and that's kind of keeps your ton in the same place. And, uh, it doesn't have the big mouthpiece shoving your airway closed. And I wonder, and I, again, I had fantastic people and the radiation techs and the people I worked with were just amazing. However, I wonder if they've ever had one of those masks made and if they understand what it's like to have this, that big old mouthpiece in and then try to stretch the plastic over it. Um, so anyway, second, second time was good. And they, you know, uh, but the side note, that experience uh, and freaking out like that, um, I took an anti-anxiety pill uh, before my radiation treatment um, every day until the end of my treatment. So it was uh, seven weeks, five days a week of radiation. I was taking an anxiety pill uh, before every treatment just to make sure that I didn't freak out again when I was locked into the mass. Now, fast forward five, six weeks into treatment, I, pretty old. Uh, they also had to redo the mask because something we're going to talk about here in a minute is uh, I lost four, over 40 pounds during the course of treatment. So in order for the mask to do its job and hold me in the right place, they had to do the whole thing over again and recreate the radiation mask. And uh, it was, it was funny because the tech walks in and goes, here's the mouthpiece. I'm like, we don't use that. <laughs> We're, nope. That's not on the agenda for today. You can throw that one in the trash and get exactly other, get the other one because that's no bueno. Yeah. And then he's like, well, the ton depressor has to go in deeper. I'm like, dude, I'm like five weeks in. I know where the fracking ton depression, ton depressor goes. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, March 30, 2020 started treatment and that was a, a chemo day. So I had a cisplatin uh, infusion and, um, and my first radiation treatment. And um, <laughs> that, that Friday I had a disc in my back go <laughs> So L3, L4 goes and, and, uh, I, I've had back pain before this was epic. I mean, this was, this was stuff I'd never experienced and was just awful. And I'm, I'm not the toughest guy in the room. Uh, but I've, I've dealt with enough 
to where I can, I can handle some discomfort. And this was next level. So boom, hospital. Uh, and of course their first thought as a cancer patient is, has this spread? And so, you know, MRI with contrast and, you know, all this testing and stuff. And it turns out it, you know, there was no spread or anything, but I had this disc that had gone. So I ended up having to treat nerve pain for X amount of time during my cancer treatment. And um, so past that point, up until my second infusion, which was two weeks later, uh, and I was supposed to have three infusions. Um, so I'm about, call it four and a half weeks into treatment. And outside of, I'd had some nausea, I'd had some vomiting, I, you know, I, I um, and that's, that's what ran me into my second um, stay in the hospital, um, where, you know, I ended up in, within the first, say, four weeks of treatment outside of some nausea and vomiting from chemo, um, which is like, okay, you're, you're getting chemo, I just deal with it. And I would have said, I didn't even know I was having any treatment other than the, the you, you feel crappy after chemo. Um, and then the hammer fell and, you know, I had I probably at that point I had lost 15 pounds or so. Uh, and in the last course of, of treatment, I lost like another uh, close to 30 pounds and um, um, ended up in the hospital. My nausea got out of control. Um, I couldn't take my meds. I couldn't keep anything down. Um, and, and then the pain started and, um, just a side note that'll emphasize the, the kind of radiation and stuff is, uh, a year plus after my treatment, I go into my doc, my ENT and I'm like, you know, Hey, since this was a tonsillar based, uh, cancer, should I have my, uh, should I have my tonsils out? And he kind of looked at me funny for a second. He goes, yeah, uh, you don't have those anymore. Um, radiation took care of that. <laughs> so FYI. just FYI, uh, we, we radiated you enough to burn two organs out of your body, uh, two glands out of your body. Um, so that's kind of, and I say that to emphasize like the, the sort of the radiation that I was receiving, even though very targeted, it's radiation. And um, there's burns and, and everything else associated. So about four and a half weeks in, in addition to the nausea and everything, the pain starts and um, it's bad. And I'm already, you know, I'm losing weight at a pace where every time I go into the doc, they're like, eh, if you don't turn things around here, we're going to put the feeding tube in. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do better. I'll do better. And it, it's funny. I don't remember being hungry you lose 40 some odd pounds and you, and you really go without eating for extended periods of time. You think you'd get hungry. I don't remember being hungry. Yep. Same with me. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. And so, you know, I, um, there were days where I couldn't talk at all. Uh, there were days where we ended up getting this, um, neutral liquid diet, liquid food, uh, which you could put in a feeding tube. It's, you know, it's medical grade um, uh, liquid food, um, liquid meals, and it's neutral. It has no flavor. It has nothing. So there were days where my entire day was get up. Uh, it would for a 12, I think they were 12 ounce 
they might've been 16 ounces. I think they were 12 ounce. Um, and then, you know, 500 some odd calories in, in this little 12 ounce drink. So really dense nutrition, but neutral taste. It would take me an hour and a half to drink one of those because I would take a sip. It would burn. I'd get some water down. I'd wait for the pain to subside, take my next sip water, wait for the pain to subside. So 12 ounces would take me hour, hour and a half to get down. I'd go back to sleep for five hours and I'd wake up and repeat the process and have another drink that would take me an hour, hour and a half to get down. And then I might watch a few minutes of TV and then go back to bed. And so that by the end of it, uh, I go in and then my last week of treatment, I'm, I'm into week seven, getting ready to start week seven. And it's a chemo day. And I walk in and uh, the doc looks at me. I mean, she just walked in the room. Fantastic doctor. Uh, very Eastern European. Um, actually a really kind of well-known uh, medical oncologist. And uh, she walks in the room and she looks at me and she goes, well, we're not doing this to you today. She says, you, you look bad. <laughs> I'm like, when, when the medical oncologist walks in the room and goes, you look bad. Yeah. You're not looking good. Um, they, they chemo people at various stages and she was not willing to, to, to chemo me that day. And, um, I'm like, thank you. I mean, I would have done it. I, I, I would have, I would have sat there and taken the infusion, but you know, couldn't do it, could not do it. And, um, so I finished out my week of treatment and I actually went to the hospital again. Uh, the pain, uh, was so bad, uh, that I needed IV, uh, pain meds. And I, I ended up on a fentanyl patch for, I think it was at least eight to 12 weeks that I was on a fentanyl patch just to manage the pain. And, um, you know, your, my follow-up scans for mine, because of the way the radiation stays active in your body for so long, my follow-up scans were not for three months. It was 12 weeks after treatment. That's a long three months. Well, I, I was busy just trying to deal with the pain and, and recover. That's fair. <laughs> so That's fair. <laughs> I was otherwise engaged. Um, and, uh, you know, people will say they do things to find their limits. <clears throat> I have a pretty good idea where my limits are now. And uh, there are way easier ways than radiation and chemo and cancer to find them. Uh, but you know, I, one of my realizations in coming out of this was I, I pretty much know where my limits are. And so, um, and I didn't, you know, you were, um, kind of chronicled your journey, um, way more than I did. I, I looked back through my phone in preparation for this and was kind of looking at like pictures and things I might've put on social media at the time. And, um, uh, up until about four and a half, five weeks in, I was going for a walk a couple times a week. Um, I was kind of managing everything. And remember I had the, the back flare up, so I wasn't exactly throwing around bells and, and doing a whole lot of lifting or anything. And, uh, but I posted very little. I didn't, I didn't talk about this. My family knew. And, um, you know, there were days where I, I worked through, through cancer as you did. And, but there were days where, like I said, my entire day was, try to drink something, sleep, try to drink something, sleep, you know, the, the whole day. Another radiation side effect is, uh, effect is the fatigue 
um, in addition to the, the, the burn, the pain. Um, and so, you know, I made it through, um, and, but I, I suffered, I, I struggled, I suffered, I, uh, but, and we talked about this a lot. Um, you, uh, you keep taking steps, you, you identify the next step, you take the next step and it's might be a sucky step, but you do it because you have to. And, uh, you know, I have to, I have to say, you know, my wife, uh, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have made it without her, uh, without her support and without her being beside me. And, um, so it, you know, uh, I know I've kind of rambled on here for most of what we hoped was a short podcast. This, this one might be a bit longer. Um, but it, uh, so long story kept medium. Um, uh, I, um, you know, continued to recover post, uh, treatment, uh, had my follow-up scans. I'd gone from 205, a little over 205 to 164, um, just a shadow of my former self and, um, had my follow-up scans, PT, uh, PET scans and, and everything. And, uh, was, and found, learned my new favorite acronym NED, no evidence of disease. Yes. And, um, have just been recovering and moving forward since. And, and we can talk more about, I think we'll do another one on training during and after cancer and talking, talking about that. But, uh, you know, I, I've kind of regained, I'm, I'm ballpark about 185 now, as far as my weight is concerned. And, um, you know, at 205, was I, was I heavy? Did I have a, a thick middle, uh, dare I say gut? Um, yeah, absolutely. 205 plus was on a five foot nine frame is a little too much weight to be carrying around. Uh, but had I not had that extra tissue to sacrifice, I would not have made it through treatment without a feeding tube, without, you know, extraordinary measures being taken. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of these fit pros. That's, uh, the, the, and never have been, you know, the, uh, aesthetics based six pack trainer, um, having a little extra tissue for emergency purposes is, is not the worst thing in the world. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've talked about some of this on a couple other podcasts, but that's definitely the most, uh, the most detail. Um, so yeah, radiation is uh, different. And the whole reason you get chemo while you're getting radiation is cisplatin is like a magnifier. It, it amplifies what the radiation is doing. And so, you know, from a treatment standpoint, it really helps get the most out of the, out of the radiation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this, so many things are wrapped in here for me with uh, the gut punch, the, that, that moment of anxiety and panic uh, and that getting to do that five days a week for, for seven weeks. Um, and the pain and the, you know, all the, the three different hospital visits and everything that I had to, to endure, uh, during that, uh, time frame. And, uh, I am happy for all of it because, uh, I am still here and, um, moving forward and I've rambled for way too long. That's okay. We love to listen to you ramble, Brett. <laughs> Um, well, you know what, thank you for, for going into detail a little bit more of your story. Um, I think it's, it's important for, for people to hear these things because, 
Um, well, first of all, a lot of people just don't share their journey and that's okay. That's a personal thing. It, it's up to them. But at the same time, I think it, it can serve a, a very good educational purpose by sharing your story and, and being authentic and real. And, um, you know, this, you know, this, this specific podcast, this episode is, is definitely about our journeys, but at the same time, we're probably going to be talking about, you know, training with cancer and the mindset and, and, and post, and that's just a part of our lives. And that's going to be not just a part of our lives within the next year. It's going to be a part of our lives for forever, because, um, you know, once you're a cancer patient, you're always a cancer patient, whether you like it or not. And, um, you know, it, it sounds a bit negative, but that's just the reality of it. And I'm, I'm still in the middle of it with my story. And, um, yeah. We can kind of talk about that now. So um, over the last probably three to four years, I had some some GI issues, you know, some stomach issues. I felt like I had food sensitivities. Um, a lot of things would just upset my stomach. And I would, you know, if we're talking candidly, I would, you know, get an upset stomach. I'd, I'd, I'd have diarrhea and have to go to the, the bathroom. And, and uh, that started to happen more and more and more. And you know, at first I attributed it to like stress and owning a gym and being a business owner and having two kids and just being pulled in a million different directions. Um, so I just kind of ignored it. I was like, you know what, I'm just stressed out. You know, once, once things get less stressful, which never happens, um, I'll start to feel a little bit better. So it, it didn't get better. And I started noticing that again, more and more, I was like, you know, first I was in the bathroom four or five times a day. And then like towards the end of it, you know, towards within the last, let's say eight to eight to 12 months ago, it was in the bathroom 12, 15 times a day. And it was, it was almost embarrassing because I'd have to say to my clients, pardon me. And, um, I try to be as professional as possible. And, and it just, I was like, this is not good. And I was noticing same thing in the middle of exercising, trying to work out even the, in the middle of jujitsu, I'd have a stomach ache. I'd have to leave class. And I was like, finally talked to my doctor and he said, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to start you on some, uh, you know, a couple of different meds, see if that settles your belly down. And um, we're also going to get a couple of tests, an H. pylori test, which is a bacterial test, and they're going to do a blood test too. Um, did both of those that came back negative? Nothing. So I was like, okay, maybe this this is just like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or some other GI issue. But he goes, listen, here's the scoop. If it gets any worse, let me know. We're going to schedule a colonoscopy, and it started to get worse. Then I started to know blood. I started to see blood, and it, you know, started off a little bit and then it got to the point where it was pretty much every time. And I was like, this is not good. So scheduled my colonoscopy, um, at, at, uh, essentially 41 years old. And, um, I, my colonoscopy was actually two days before my 41st birthday. So it was two days prior and I go in and I get prepped. I do the whole, you know, colonoscopy prep with the, with the, uh, laxative it's a i'm not even gonna get into that it's not a fun experience but um let's just say make sure you have a dedicated bedroom and restroom um so anyhow i go i get the colonoscopy you know i get put to sleep i wake up and you don't know how long you're out for because you're just out and i wake up and i'm sort of you know kind of in and out um you know you kind of move your head around and things are starting to become a little bit more clear and then i see my wife coming in and I'm thinking to myself, okay, she's not supposed to be in here because it's, you know, it's in the middle of COVID and they're not allowing anyone else. And I'm like, why is my wife here? She sits next down to me. Uh, doctor comes in and says, um, um, you know, we, we have some news. We, we found a mass and, um, you know, we weren't even able to complete a full colonoscopy because you were almost fully blocked 
um, in your colon and we're 95% sure it's cancer. And it was, again, there's the gut punch, right? There's the, the whoa, like, like I still even now feel like there's an emotional response, just, just talking about it. But when, when you get diagnosed and, and then she tells you what's going to happen and it's like, you're gathering information, but when they're speaking to you, you're already, you're already thinking at the same time about what the hell's going to go on. Am I going to be alive? And it's weird because you're processing information and you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. But at the same time, they're continuing to try to talk about it. And you just got, it, it just, it's a very surreal experience because you do, you get that gut punch. It's, it's like, if, you know, you go to sit down and the chair is not there and you, it's, it's something like that, where you're just, you can't imagine anything like it. Um, and so they said, listen, we, we got to, we got to figure this out soon. I'm going to refer you to, um, a local doctor, uh, and orthopedic, uh, and a surgeon, uh, that specializes in, you know, abdomen surgery, uh, et cetera. We're going to have you go speak to him. And then we're going to have you go, um, meet with an oncologist. And luckily enough, my, uh, through some friends and my awesome primary care physician, like I literally was able to get the best local doctor that does this. And also the chief of oncology is my oncologist at the hospital that I went to. So they said, listen, you've got a mass. We did all the scans already. Um, we did the biopsies. You have stage three colon cancer. The mass is roughly between the size of a golf ball and a lacrosse ball. And we need to get that out of you as soon as possible. So we want you to start with um, surgery, colon resection, and then uh, we're going to have you do six months of chemotherapy and that's it. And it's interesting because my doctor, he's very matter of fact, he's like, this is what, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. So I had to wait a little bit and process everything. I get another call and they said, listen, um, based off the location of the mass and the discomfort that you're feeling, we're going to have you, before you do your actual resection, we're going to put in a colonic stent where they go in and it's wire mesh and they blow it up with a balloon and they basically try to create more space for, um, for things to flow. And so they did that and uh, it's a wire mesh. And, and I was thinking, oh, it's going to be like a colonoscopy. I had severe abdominal pains throughout the day. Just, it felt like I was going to burst. And I was like, oh man, one second, I'd be fine. The second I'd be another second, I'd be, you know, kind of keeling over in pain. So, but that was only temporary because when I go to have my surgery and when they take the tumor out, they're going to take the stent out because really what the stent does is if this is essentially your colon, the stent goes there and then blows it up, but it also pushes the tumor sort of anterior, uh, to your, to your belly. So when they go and do the surgery on the front side, um, that's how they get it out. So I was like, okay, let's do this. Um, went in, had a colon resection. Um, the doctor was actually very happy with the surgery because he said it was usually takes about four hours. He said it took two and a half. And he said, um, one of the main reasons why his job was easier is because I was thinner. And uh, he said it was a lot easier to just see things and access things um, from a surgical standpoint. I never thought of that, I, but it was just an interesting observation. It was like he made, and even like when I had my surgery, I was supposed to be out a certain time and I was out much earlier and, and they called my wife and she was obviously panicked. But anyways, I get the, I get the surgery and I wake up and they pump you full of drugs because they, they know I'm on morphine drips. Um, and, uh, you know, I felt, I woke up and I'm like, I felt pretty good. I was like, okay, this isn't too bad. And then once, you know, once the morphine starts to wear off, it, it become this, this absolutely agonizing pain. And then you come in, you get the morphine and we did that for about two to three days. Um, 
And that was really tough. And in addition to that, I had the morphine and then I had to have heparin injections in my stomach because we wanted to make sure we didn't have any blood clotting. And those, those heparin injections, for some reason, I just didn't like, they just, I don't know, it, maybe I'm just a baby, but I was just, I was so sick of them. And, um, and they said, well, listen, you got it. The other option is you got to move as much as possible. And I was like, I'm going to get up and move. And uh, the first time I went to walk, um, it took me about 35 minutes to walk maybe 50 yards. And it was painful. Yep. I with a walker, by the way, this is not with, this is not with by my, this is with a walker and resting against the wall and resting on the walker. So I did that. And, um, I was in the hospital for, uh, four days, came home and recovered for about a week. Same thing. The pain was, you know, it would take me about an hour to walk to the end of my driveway and back, which is about 200 feet. So the next step was chemotherapy. And, uh, the way that it worked was, I had to get a, a port into my chest, a port of catheter that went into, uh, you know, main line into my neck. And, uh, I have to have chemotherapy every, uh, every other week for six months. And, um, I would go in, I'd get my infusion done at the hospital for approximately, I'd be there about four hours, um, go home, meet a visiting nurse. She would connect me to a chemotherapy pump for another 46 hours. And then I would get it removed, uh, and then I'd repeat that basically for, uh, for six months. And, uh, you know, at first, um, it was tough because I, they gave me all these medicines and they have these typical treatment plans. And what ends up happening is they give you these sort of concoctions and then they see how you respond and then they change things accordingly, depending on how you're feeling. So my first treatment, they gave me a bunch of dexamethasone, which is a steroid, which is seven times stronger than prednisone. And I did the math. It was the equivalent of taking about 150 milligrams of prednisone a day, um, which I was like, I was like the roadrunner. I was like, so just amped up and, and just, the, it made me absolutely bananas. Like literally the day I got my pump off, I demoed my stair, my brick stairs with my neighbor with sledgehammers. Like this, literally I got my pump off. I'm like, I feel great. And then again, I, and, and I'd be awake for like three days straight. Right. Well, I couldn't sleep. So I said to the doctors, I'm not sleeping. One morning I woke up with a migraine and I was vomiting for several hours and it happened to be father's day <laughs> and, uh, and happy father's, day. To, happy father's day, woke up with a migraine vomiting for about two to three hours. And then I had to go to my son's soccer tournament, which was an eight hour day. So that was an interesting day. Um, but I came back eventually decided to take me off of the steroids and, um, you know, just give me something else and give me the anti-nausea and everything else. So they went off the steroids and I was able to sleep and things started, uh, you know, started, um, sort of regulating and evening out. And then, um, we get to a point where I, I kind of knew what to expect. And, and essentially I tell everybody, it feels like a five day hangover a four to five day hangover that you really can't do anything about. It just, you feel tired, you feel nauseous all the time and there's nothing you can do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got through it <laughs> and it was, there was days of, of pain and, and days of extreme nausea and sickness and uh, lack of motivation. But, um, you know, I just finished up my last round of chemotherapy, um, gosh, two weeks ago. And, and now it's the waiting game for my scans. So I get the scans at the end of the month and hopefully I get to, to be no evidence of disease as well. So, um, you know, that's my story. And, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about, um, our journeys, but we wanted to be able to share our experiences with you because, um, 
we're here to we're here to help. Okay, if you need if you need to ask questions about this or you things you want to talk about with us, you can you can find us online. Um, and you know, we really appreciate you guys tuning in. And uh, Brett, anything oh, you want to close? Yeah, close with? I want to I want to highlight uh, a couple of things. Um, and we're probably going to break our forty minute uh, time frame here for just a for. That's all right. It's only the second podcast, so we can break rules. Um, we can. So two things. One, um, the caretakers. You know, they they take the same gut punch or more than than we do, because uh, you know, hearing that diagnosis for your loved one and, and the impact that it has on your family and knowing that the treatment's coming and all the uncertainty and, and trying to do as much as the, as they, as the caretakers can to help. And then we talked about this, you know, during your journey, there's, there's, there's just no help at, at certain points, you know, it's so frustrating. You feel the caretaker feels so helpless because there is nothing you can do to help. And it's, it's maddening um, and, and just challenging. And so there's a, there's a whole other angle of this, of, of the impact that it has on your family and your caretakers. And, you know, I was in pandemic times as you were, and, you know, my, my parents couldn't come up and, and help at all. And nobody could come in and I would either go into the hospital by myself for my radiation or, um, you know, my wife would drive me days that I couldn't manage to drive myself. She'd drive me and, wait outside and um, pick me up and take me back home. And, and my radiation treatments were like 15 minutes. Like I'm, I'm on the table for less than 15 minutes. Uh, so you go in and, and they radiate you and out the door. Um, but, you know, there's, that's a whole other angle of things. That's, that's just uh, uh, that you continue to deal with after the fact. And then, um, you know, you called me uh, coming out from your uh, diagnosis, from, from your procedure. And I remember that, that, and I don't know if you've had this yet, but uh, at, at a certain point you will, because um, it, when you sit back and think about it, cancer's impacted your life more than, you know, and it's impacted the lives of people that, you know, um, and when you called and, and told me I had an extremely emotional reaction, um, and I'm not embarrassed to say we were crying on the phone and uh, talking about everything. And the, the knee jerk reaction when somebody tells you they've been diagnosed with cancer is to be positive, right? The knee jerk reaction is, Oh, my brother's cousin's uncle had that. He's doing fine now. And boy, the boy, they've advanced so much in the treatments and boy, it's and, and, you know, there's just this knee jerk reaction of positive, positive, positive frack you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I'm not in the mindset for positive right now. I no. just, and, and I'd started a little journal and something that may eventually becomes uh, a book or something, but uh, you know, I looked at it as I got my clock reset and I didn't know how much time I had. Yeah. And so you, you've taken this gut punch, you, you, all this uncertainty and you and people just want to be positive. There's a time for that not right after you've been diagnosed, you're scared, you're angry. Um, and I, you know, for me, I, I flip through those things very quickly and get to, well, what's the next step? And we, like we mentioned it earlier and we'll, t we'll talk about it more, but, uh, you know, uh, for me, it's like the Matt Damon, um, Martian, uh, moment where he's like, Hey, you know, you solved the problem, solved the problem. 
And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. Well, identify the next step, take the next step. And if you take enough steps, hopefully you get to come back home. And, um, you know, those are two things that I think uh, from a, um, from a cancer diagnosis, cancer treatment perspective, you know, the, the, the caretakers are going through everything that you're going through. Um, and there, there is that uh, disconnectedness and you, and you don't know till you've been through it. Um, and, but give that person that's just been diagnosed that the, they need time to be angry, to be scared, to, um, to process uh, what's going on. And the, the positive messages come later. And then if, if you're lucky enough, you have people that are uh, giving you a hard time and making fun of you as you're uh, going through your, through your treatments and, uh, you know, keeping, keeping you on your toes. Absolutely. That's, that's uh, <laughs> honestly some of the, some of the best things. About, I mean, if there's any positive things about, um, you know, my cancer experience, especially with my friends that know me real, real well, I mean, it just, nothing's off limits. We bust each other's chops. And honestly, it's the best thing ever because, at a certain point, you know, once you get diagnosed and, and you get through the initial shock and, and it becomes like a job, it becomes a, like, I got to go in at this time and I got to do it. Um, you start to almost, it's not that you care less about your diagnosis, but you're in such a routine that you can, kind of, you, you know what to expect a little bit and, and you know, it's going to suck, but as long as you, you know, it's having those funny texts and those, you know, those, those fun conversations are always a, a beautiful thing because those are the friends that like, they're still going to, they're all, you know, they're there for you and they're going to bust your chops, but you know, at the same time, at the drop of a hat, if you needed them, they would, they would hop on a plane or hop on a car and, and just, and just go. And, um, you know, Brett, you were talking earlier about, uh, you know, your caretakers. And, uh, I have said this a million times, I'm so glad that I'm the one in my family that got cancer and it sounds weird, but if this were reversed, I don't know if I could be as strong as my wife is. I just don't think I can. She's, she's amazing. And, and, uh, I have, I probably haven't told her enough, but like, I don't know if I could do what she does, especially with the kids and, and the business. And, um, so yeah, it's, you know, getting through the cancer thing is in chemo and surgery. It's personally and physically, it's mentally, it's tough, but I don't know if I could, I don't know how I would have responded if it was, you know, the opposite scenario. And it's just, uh, that's the thing that for me, it's, it sounds very weird, but like I said, if anybody in my family has to have it, I'm glad it's me. And, um, it's, uh, you know, I'm glad it's not my boys and, 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 and stuff like that. I mean, I know I have good friends that their kids are literally born with cancer and it's just like, holy cow. So it's like, I, I can't even begin to understand what she felt and feels. And, uh, it's, it's hard because I, so many times she's like, how can I help you? And there's literally nothing that you can do except just be there and, and, uh, you know, if I can give anybody advice, especially if you're, you know, someone that's got recently diagnosed is just, just make it easy. Like, don't try to do anything over the top. Just make it easy. You know, I can't tell you how many friends were like, Hey, thinking of you, whatever you need. And honestly, just, to, and, and they were authentic. If I was like, dude, I need a pizza from this place. They would do it or whatever. And, um, you know, it's nice when you don't have to go out and, and be the person to plan stuff. And it's just, you know, if you know someone that's been there, just make it easy for them. Do anything you can to make their lives easier during this journey um, because they don't need other stuff on their plate and we don't need other stuff on our plate during our treatment. So the ability to just be there and to be um, 
to know that if someone needs you, that they can call. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool to see who steps up to the plate and who really gives a damn about you, not only during the initial treatment, because the initial treatment and the initial diagnosis, when you tell people, it's like when you have your birthday on Facebook, everybody wishes you a birthday, but two months down the road, no one gives a damn about you. That's kind of what happens with cancer. And um, you get your initial diagnosis and everybody that you've ever spent time with messages you and we got you whatever you need. And then you realize they're just being, they're just being pleasant and they're being friendly, but we know that 90% of those people don't really mean it when they say I've got your back. They're just being friendly and they're trying to be positive, which I understand. But the cool thing is you will know who truly has your back, who truly will do anything for you when you're months, half a year, years away from the diagnosis and they're still being like, Hey, how are you? And those are the special people in your lives. Definitely. And I had, uh, you know, Alan Cosgrove as somebody, a uh, two-time cancer survivor himself and, you know, somebody that reached out and, you know, was in, in contact with me, yourself, John Spisano, others. Um, and, you know, we mentioned the kind of, you know, getting, getting razzed or getting those, uh, you know, text and, you know, making fun of you or, or whatever it is. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the other th aspect of that is normalcy. Yeah. You don't want to be treated like you're uh, a made of glass and that you might break at any moment, even though it could very well be <laughs> very well could break at any moment. <laughs> yeah. And, but you want that little bit of normalcy. You want that, uh, that sense that things are, things are going to come through, things are going to be good. And, uh, yeah, uh, like like we talked about that the the hardest thing from the caretaker standpoint is that helplessness, that feeling that there's just nothing you can do, but you're just desperate to do something. Yeah, and uh, it's an awful place to be. Um, and you know, there's obviously we we can spend other uh, talks later on down the road unpacking other aspects of this, uh, but you know, it's. To, to get it out there, um, you know, you've had the experience of recommending people go get their colonoscopies and, and people have come back to you and they've, they've found things and, and been able to address things early. And I had a similar experience when I had my melanoma and, um, um, you know, I had I'm recommending people go get their skin checks and, you know, things like that. And some people found some things. Um, throat cancer is not something that you typically uh, screen for. Uh, so it's, it's a little little different, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the journey continues and, um, you know, we're, um, I'm a year and three, four months, uh, from the end of my treatment. And, uh, the, the two year time frame for me is a big deal. Um, with, with my particular type of cancer, two years is the, if it's going to recur, it typically happens within that, that two year time frame. Um, and you know you're waiting the results of your two more two more weeks yeah about two more weeks until yeah. i have my scans and then i have uh you know a follow-up about a week after so but luckily i called my uh, doctor's office and i said hey i'm getting my scans on this date is there like someone i can call like just the next day just to see like if i get like the thumbs up or the thumbs down like is there and they're like yeah call the office immediately the next day and, and we'll get you to talk to the oncologist or um, you know, one of the nurses and, uh, most likely the oncologist. Um, so I was like, sweet. So, cause I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have my scans and I'm going to have to wait like seven, eight days. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be a long 
week, but um, yeah. so it's just a waiting game. But as a, you know, as of now, I, I feel pretty good. There's still some some side effects that I'm dealing with, but um, you know, neuropathy is one of them, which is which is not fun. Um, I find motor skills, and um, there's certain things that are a little bit harder these days, like tying my shoes and playing guitar and doing something, anything that really involves the tips of my fingers is just uh, it's a little bit harder. And same thing with my feet. I wake up first thing in the morning, and it feels like I'm walking on Legos for a little bit, and but besides that, I feel so much better. Like physically, I feel better. This is the best I've felt in like literally three, three to five years physically, because I don't have any GI issues. I'm not sick all the time. I feel like I'm a normal individual. And that's, it's pretty awesome to, to not feel like crap all the time. Um, no doubt. No and, doubt. Uh, and, you know, hindsight, I don't know. It's hard for me to think back and, and think of what other ways, you know, I may have been experiencing my cancer prior to knowing that it was there. And, um, you know, the, and that's, we may be a future podcast, but, uh, the, you know, the, the, what if is always lingering. Right. Um, and, but you, you go to your docs, you do your scans, you, you trust that, you know, everybody's got their, their, uh, eyes on you and, uh, you move forward and, uh, really appreciate the, uh, the chance to, talk this through with you, uh, on, uh, on the podcast, hopefully, you know, folks listen and they, they maybe pick up a thing or two. Um, and, um, you know, it's, and there are so many people out there right now going through that journey, uh, just starting in the middle, uh, just finished or years after the fact. And, um, you know, the, uh, Alan Cosgrove told me the, uh, Cancer Survivors Club is uh, one that you never want to join, but you're so glad you're in it. So, amen, amen to that. I think, I think honestly, I think that's a perfect place to start <laughs> <laughs> because we couldn't finish it any better. Um, Absolutely. Well, listen, everybody, we uh, we appreciate you all tuning in. Um, you know, this is just a, a really a small part of our story. I mean, there's so many directions to go, but um, we wanted to give you all the opportunity to hear. Um, some personal stuff about us because um, we feel like it's important and, and both of us being, you know, strength and conditioning coaches and, uh, you know, working with a bunch of different individuals and, you know, this, this podcast, we are going to talk a lot about training and, um, but at the same time, that's not all we're going to talk about because there are other things, you know, important in our lives than, you know, swinging bells and, and, and lifting, et cetera. So um, we will share our journey and we're going to continue to talk about those things, but we are going to get into a little bit of training talk very, very soon. And we've got some amazing guests. So uh, do us a favor. Um, if you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe and, uh, you know, feel free to share it with your friends. And, um, you know, if we can make a positive impact on one or two people, then we've done our job. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast. So uh, we appreciate you all. And anything else you want to say, Brett? Just want to say thanks. Uh, appreciate you, Mike, and uh, appreciate all the, all the listeners and uh, look forward to the next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.